Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this Thursday, the 20th of uh, February. Okay, so I want a quick weather report. Um, uh, Apparently, it's going to be colder where I live today than I expected. How about you? What is the weather report report where you are living, the weather forecast? You know, it reminds me that Jesus, uh, Jesus observed that we're often very, very good at reading uh, you know, reading the weather, like looking at the uh, looking at the horizon and saying, oh, you know, because of that skyline, uh, it's going to be like this tomorrow or, oh, I can see that happening. But then he observed, you know, you're not very good at reading the signs of your own times. And so let's be sure that as we are making weather forecasts today uh, and deciding what kind of shoes we're going to wear, that we're also discerning of the times in which we live and bringing um, bringing the spiritual influence that we possess by the power of the Holy Spirit to bear on what's happening today. And so I remember a conversation that I had once with some students in a Sunday school class, and I was talking about um, weather, and what they were hearing was weather, weather or not. Not weather, like is it going to rain or snow, but weather, like W-H-E-T-H-E-R, not W-E-A-T-H-E-R. Is that how you spell weather? Yeah. So um, so weather or not. And so let's also have a little weather forecast, like whether or not. And the whether or not conversation that's most imperative and important to have is whether or not Jesus, whether or not, whether or not God. Um, and it's one thing to uh, sort of live in the midst of whatever the cultural climate is of the day uh, in terms of the that kind of weather. It's another thing to be prepared for the conversations that the culture is having about whether or not there is a God and whether or not that God is good and whether or not grace is real and whether or not Jesus makes any difference. And so let's ask different questions today. When people are asking weather questions, why don't you change those over into weather questions, whether or not. All right. uh, First up this morning, uh, well, first up during this hour this morning, Peter Kapsner. He and I are going to talk about Dwayne Wade. For those of you who know Peter's passion for basketball, uh, the fact that I have a story at the intersection of basketball and worldview uh, seems like it's just going to be right up his alley, or I guess in basketball terms, uh, right up his lane. We'll be right back. Kapsner is joining me today. Um, he and I like to just frankly talk. And so it's an opportunity to get together on air and have conversations that we would be having over coffee if we were in the same place and 
Um, Peter, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. I have to say that after you were texting me photos last week of the daffodils in your yard <laughs> while it was minus 10 here, I, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be, but I'm fervently praying for a blanket of snow to hit you down there right now. I know. I, there's flurries in the forecast. <laughs> I love that. There's flurries. I'm going to have to change my shoes. Okay. <laughs> so I think we should start with a conversation about um, uh, in basketball because I want to I want to have a conversation about something I read about Dwayne Wade. But before yeah. we get there, could we just talk about the lines and dimensions of a basketball court so that um, so that those of us who basketball is not really our thing, we use the right terms when we're talking with people like you for whom basketball is a thing? <laughs> yeah, well, we certainly can. I think if you needed a, a quick refresher or just some sort of introductory movie to basketball, there's an end scene in the movie Hoosiers. It's a very old movie with Gene Hackman, but he kind of walks that you movie. through. Right? Did and you he, know I was born in Indiana? I did not know that. And that, mm-hmm. I mean, that is the Hoosier. hoops mecca of our country. And it's an incredible story about a small town group of basketball players who sort of defeat the, the Goliath of their state. And uh, it's based on a true story. But one of my favorite scenes at the end is as these young rural community uh, 18 19 17 year olds whatever they are are now in this huge stadium in Indiana and they're completely overwhelmed by the stadium Gene Hackman takes them and begins to basically say the lines on the court are no different here than they are back in our barn in rural community Indiana and so it's 94 feet across and 10 feet uh, for basket 15 feet away from a free throw the lane you described earlier is sort of the area around yeah, the what's hoop. the lane yeah the, the lane is the area around the hoop that's usually blocked off and basketball players can't just stand in that lane for eternity they can only be in there for three seconds at a time so they can't just sit there and guard the basket so <clears throat> lots of different dimensions of the court but it is one of my favorite scenes because I think we often feel overwhelmed by the circumstances and environments around us, right? And and to remember what's that, that circle thing? Yeah. So the isn't cir- there like a circle and then there's a three point thing? There- what's one of those? <laughs> we, you and I are going to have to do an episode of our of our podcast, The Till, just on the basketball court. I think, Carmen. <laughs> yes, there there is. If you shoot from over twenty feet away, you get three points instead of two. That's the three nice. point arc exactly. And and the NBA is dominated by that right now. Oh. <laughs> Lots of three-point shooters, huh? There, it really is. Yeah, they, they. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Who is Dwayne Wade, and why should I care? So he was. He's sort of an icon who recently retired from the Miami Heat, and he had uh, won an NBA championship in Miami with another Hall of Fame player, a guy by the name of Shaquille O'Neal. That might be a familiar Ooh, name to some, him, right? Because okay. he now sells pizza. He does indeed. He does indeed. See, and you, like you, heat and like heat patches. Right. Yeah. I mean, your basketball Icy knowledge hot. is more than you think, Carmen. <laughs> there it's you more go. than you think. And all so, right, yeah. Right. So the two of them won title and then he Shaquille O'Neal left and sort of uh, left Dwayne Wade in Miami with not much of a team around him until LeBron James decided mm. that he wanted to leave Cleveland and he took another NBA superstar with him a, a guy by the name of Chris Chris Bosch and the two of them went down to Miami and joined Dwayne Wade and it was part of maybe one of the most successful basketball runs uh, in the history of the NBA. And so Dwayne Wade is, again, recently retired, uh, really well-known in NBA circles, a, a certain Hall of Famer. And he's in the news still quite often for a number of different reasons, including what you and I are going to talk about this morning. Okay, so that brings me to today's Worldview headline, which I actually got from uh, from our friends over at the Denison Forum and then picked up this uh, Good Good Morning America piece. Um, the lead at Good Morning America is Dwayne Wade on how his family learned about gender identity hmm. from daughter. Now, the reality is we're not talking about a daughter. We're talking about a son. We're talking about a biologically male person who um, now identifies uh, apparently as female. Here's the sentence that that caught my attention and that I would really like to unpack. This is Dwayne Wade on Good Morning America. 
And he says, myself and my family, we love the fact that she doesn't have to hide who she is. She is our leader. Mm. So let me, so I I want, uh, first of all, you know, obviously he's using pronouns here that are feminine to describe a biologically male child. And then he's also um, saying, I'm letting my child be the leader of our family. I, yeah. Just unpack that for a moment. Yeah, I think that was the very same sentence that really struck me about this, Carmen, as I thought about it, is that uh, Dwayne Wade and his wife are sort of, uh, they're, they're a little bit uh, disoriented and confused about this. They didn't really know what to do. And so they are letting their now identified daughter, who who is and was their son, uh, named Zion, become Zaya. And in that, what I think what I sympathize with the Wade family right now, Carmen, is that there just really hasn't been a lot of teaching from the church or from previous generations about any of these topics. And we're sort of left anchorless. And, and almost by default, you say, well, we don't really know anything about this topic. Uh, why don't we let our children lead us? And, and it's a little akin to me when I pick up my smartphone and my iPhone and it starts shouting stuff at me like I haven't backed up my data for maybe three months. And so go to iCloud and all this stuff. And I sort of throw up my hands in those moments, Carmen, and say, I don't know what to do. But you know who does know what to do? My teenager or even my nine-year-old knows what to do because they have been swimming in and growing up in an environment that uh, technology is their native language. It's being talked about in school. They're being trained in school around these things. Their peers are doing it all day long. And I use that example because I think we underestimate the fact that it's not that our children are not getting taught about sexuality. It's simply that they're not getting taught by the church and families. We just don't really know what to do. But, Carmen, they're getting taught all day long, just like they're getting taught how to use their smartphone. They're getting taught in their school curriculum. They're getting taught by their peers. They're getting taught uh, sometimes by pornography. They're getting taught by Netflix episodes. They are swimming in sexuality in the same way they're swimming in technology. They're just swimming in different waters that we don't know. So I think the Wade family, like a lot of families, are saying, we don't know what to do. But maybe our daughter does or our son does or however we want to understand this conversation. So we're going to lean into him to teach us and to guide us. Not all that different than me handing my smartphone over to my son because I don't really know what to do about it. There's such a disempowerment. And I think that's the nub of the issue right now is that parents and families everywhere that I go, every church that I'm in, and and tonight I'll be speaking in a church for the third night in three, and it's all the same message where people just simply don't know what to do. So let's let the children lead us. And that obviously is not a great strategy. All right. And again, we want to direct um, families who are struggling with these kinds of conversations. We want to direct you to some help. Um, There's a website called Help for Families. That's the number four in the middle, Help for Families. Um, and it's a it, it's a website where you can um, where you can connect with ministries and others who um, uh, who are walking this same path. So it's yeah. help the number four families dot org. Um, Peter Kapsner and I have to take a quick break. When we come back, um, I'm going to pivot to another conversation. I'm going to ask the question: Are Americans ready for a president who is either a man? in a legal marriage to another man, that would be Pete Buttigieg, or are we ready for a guy like Mike Bloomberg, who's not actually married to the woman that he has been with for a very long period of time? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So we have some candidates for the Democratic nomination uh, 
people who want to serve as the next president of the United States. And in one case, and again, I'm talking with Peter Kapsner, Professor Peter Kapsner, um, about some of the cultural issues of the day. We're seeking to sort of discern the mind of Christ in these matters in order that, you know, we might be faithful in the conversations we have uh, today. So Pete Buttigieg is, uh, is a man who is legally married to another man. Now, that's not a marriage that I recognize as marriage because I recognize marriage as defined by God, which is between one man and one woman. And so what what the culture now recognizes as marriage, we even have to pause as Christians and say, Pete Buttigieg is legally married to another man. Um, and are we ready for that might be the first question. But the second question, I think, is equally as important. And it's this question of Mike Bloomberg and the kind of relationship that he is in with a woman named Diana Taylor. Diana Taylor was recently featured in a Washington Post piece. Um, she has been in a relationship with Mike Bloomberg for a very long period of time. Um, and and the article describes them as um, uh, having something even greater than than the equity which would be provided in marriage, that their relationship is not new. It runs deep. It is bound neither by law nor by religion. Um, uh, and she describes herself in this relationship not as his partner, certainly not as his spouse, but as a unicorn. Um, and so I just wanted to lift this up and um, and and just say, Peter, where are we in terms of uh, in terms of the culture and the country, and is the country really ready for this kind of relationship in the White House? Yeah, boy. Uh, to your first example, in terms of Pete Buttigieg and being in a gay relationship and potentially being president and the idea of a first husband and, and all of that, I, I think it follows a longstanding pattern in some of the changing norms in sexuality that we see, Carmen, that things at first feel very shocking when they are new and different and outside of the norm of something. But it, it doesn't take that long until the shocking becomes somewhat normal. And uh, and I'm not saying that I'm accepting or embracing of these things. I'm just saying it kind of just becomes part of the stream of life and it becomes a common way of seeing. So I think, uh, it, you know, if I could read the tea leaves a little bit around Pete Buttigieg, obviously there's going to be a significant percentage of the American population that is going to celebrate the uh, supposed victory that this is for LGBTQ rights. And uh, finally, we are making progress is going to be sort of the idea. I think there's another whole section of the country, Carmen, that really doesn't know what to do with all of this. But we have sort of begun to live <clears throat> in a time in which the what was shocking four or five, six years ago in our country around gay marriage is becoming somewhat normalized. In fact, maybe even more normalized than we think. And especially because we don't really know how to think about marriage always and we don't really know why it would be wrong for two men or two women to live, a, live out a, a faithfully committed, loving relationship. I know my students in particular are always asking that question. Kapsner, why, why would this be inconsistent with God's kingdom? I mean, they love each other. They're in a faithful, committed relationship. What would possibly be wrong about that? And it is such a good question, and it takes quite a while to dig into it. But I think a lot of people are in that space. And so you're going to have, I think, a combination of celebration. You're going to have a, a combination of people saying, well, I mean, what could be wrong with it? What would I have to say about it? And it's almost like uh, an apathy or a throwing up of the hands and saying, I don't know what else to do in this situation. Certainly, there'll be a certain segment of our country that will talk about that this is portending the end of all things and, and become sort of apocalyptic about the whole thing would be my best guess, just seeing what I see in responses in many Christian communities, all of which are understandable. 
But I, I think that we need to look at what is it about male and female marriage? What is it about that beautiful one flesh covenant that God designed that really represents shalom? And how do these other ways of being in relationship, though they may look like they could be that way, how are they sort of imitating and ultimately um, are delusions that lead to death instead of life? These are big conversations, but I think our country is probably going to be more accepting of something like that, uh, whether it happens this election or another time, than, uh, than we might guess. So Diana Taylor, um, this this woman w- with whom Mike Bloomberg has been in this 20-year relationship, um, I, I do think that, Peter, she makes it for an interesting cultural study. Yes. Um, she was married once. She did not have any, any children. Um, she describes herself as not ever having any children because she never found anyone she was interested in having children with. Um, she doesn't have uh, she doesn't like any of the words that are used um, to th- that people use to refer to her. Um, she does not like people referring to her as Mike Bloomberg's girlfriend, nor partner, nor companion, nor consort. She doesn't like any of those terms. She doesn't she she particularly does not like the term gal pal, um, which I can totally understand because that's just <laughs> just weird and demeaning. Right. Um, she actually says nobody has come up with the language around what we are. I think that that is actually the sentence in this whole um, sort of biopic uh, in the Washington Post that I that that makes me stand at this point in time and say, when we've arrived at the place where we don't even have language, we don't even have shared language to describe the kinds of relationships that people are in and what that means for all their other relationships. She also does not have a term for uh, for the relationship that she has with his children. She describes herself as a step something. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know about you, but I, I that is there's no intimacy in any of this. There's no there's no language that's that's so connective that it feels sinewy. Like, yeah. Right. I mean, this is what's most troubling to me about this is that it all feels very um, it, it feels. Wow. I, I don't even have a word. Yeah, it, it's, it's, but it certainly doesn't feel like family. It doesn't feel like the way we're supposed to be knit together as people. Yeah, I think you're so right about this, Carmen. I, I think it speaks a lot to the idea of relationships being somewhat transactional these days. Meaning mm, that you that's know, the word. It that's is so right? good. And and we, I get something out of this. You get something out of that. But that is so different than the historic call of marriage. Like, why did two people uh, about this one flesh relationship in Genesis two? If you look at the context of Genesis two, in which the one flesh relationship is sort of brought into being in this world by God, it's in the context of the male and the female having a bigger call on their life. It is to steward God's ever unfolding kingdom together side by side in this beautiful covenant of marriage love and and they're shining God's light in the world in that way but the marriage in that situation was not transactional it was saying yes to a bigger call with the two of them together standing in a lifetime covenant and that's very different than than sort of the individualized transactions that we find ourselves right now where we sort of agree to something and almost kind of create uh, treaties between us so that we can get what we want out of a, out of a situation and sometimes it's simply what we want it's just some companionship Carmen people are so lonely these days and so many relationships understandably want companionship, uh, but the companionship is only sort of the soil uh, of our greater call to tend to God's world together. Peter Kapsner, as always, thank you for um, helping us bring some clarity and sanity to the conversations being had in the culture today. Um, Look forward to talking with you each and every week. Yeah, love being on with you, Carmen. Thanks, Peter. We'll be right back.
feel like you're in an intimate relationship with God? I mean, do you do you have this sense that he's literally closer to you than your next breath? Um, or are there ways that you feel like, you know, God is proximate but not intimately close? Um, my next guest is is Heath Adamson, and he and I are going to not only talk about his book, The Sacred Chase, but we're going to talk about this limited connection that many people experience with God, and we're going to talk about how to break down some of those barriers and enter into very deep, very real fellowship with God. So if you are yearning for more, thirsting for more, desiring not just to know about God, but actually be in an intimate fellowship with Him, the sacred chase is for you. This is up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Lakato. As a child of God, this resurrection life you received from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, What's next, Papa? God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who He is, and we know who we are, father and children, and we know we are going to get an unbelievable inheritance. God says, Hey, Lakato, you're an heir to the joy of Christ. Why not ask Jesus to help you? And you, Mr. Without a Clue, aren't you an heir to God's storehouse of wisdom? Mrs. Worrywart, why do you let fears steal your sleep? Are you not a beneficiary of God's trust fund? Approach God's throne not as an interloper, but as a child of the living and loving God. Because God's promises are unbreakable, our hope is unshakable. This is Max Lakato. Adamson is, among many other things, the author of The Sacred Chase. Um, and I'm not going to spend any more time introducing him than that so that we can have all the time available to um, to talk about this pursuit of God, um, because Heath argues that um, there is so much more to our relationship with Jesus than we're experiencing right now. And we all know that in the backs of our minds, and we're going to bring it to the forefront of the conversation. Keith Adamson, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Carmen. It's great to be with you. So if I were to sum up um, the sacred chase, um, I am going to sum it up in this way. Um, God is desiring to be in a real, actual relationship with us, and we sort of acknowledge that he's there and that he saved us. But we're not crawling up into his lap, and we're certainly not um, having this intimate moment-by-moment experience with him. And you actually say that is and that is available. We can have that. Yes, it is available. It is possible. And um, that is a tremendous summary, by the way, Carmen. (laughs) So let me um, let me read a few provocative questions from early in the book. Um, And so, for those of you who are listening right now, just which one of these questions is true of you? Do you want God to be more real in your life, but you're not quite sure where to begin or how to continue? Does your past torment you? Does your future worry you? Is your present reality distracting you? Has your lifestyle made it convenient to have a Christian branded version of you 
but you're really empty and hollow inside? Do you simply want to get closer to God? Um, Heath, when we talk about the the reality in which many people are living, talk about uh, or share with us your observation uh, about where most of us are living in terms of uh, of an outward expression of religion, but no inward rea- reality. Yes. Um, you know, this book is written first for those who who wonder whether or not God is even interested in them, but also for those who are very familiar perhaps with God or the name Jesus, maybe they read their Bible, maybe they pray, but they find themselves externally making good decisions. They're going to church. They're a part of life group. Uh, they're reading the Bible, even praying, doing everything they can to honor God. And yet deep down inside, it appears as if they no longer hear God's voice. Um, what I would suggest is this, even when we do not hear God's voice, it is still possible to feel God's heartbeat. There, there is a place we can come to in our relationship with God where when we gaze into the eyes of God, we catch a true reflection of who we really are. But, but here's the challenge. We have access to books. We have access to the Bible. We who have access to church and many friends who speak the same faith language we do. But at the end of the day, each one of us are as close to Jesus as we want to be. That's not in any way intended to be harsh. Instead, it is intended to remind us all we've received an invitation. And that invitation is right now, regardless of how we think or feel, we can take a step into God's direction where God has his arms wide open. And there is a place we can come to where God literally can take our breath away. It's possible. All right. That glance, um, that glance that you refer to, that that catching God's eye and being caught up in in that reflective moment, um, if you've experienced it, then you know exactly what you're talking about. Like, I, you yes. know, for people who have experienced that, they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I, I've, I've been there. I know that. Um, for some people, it is fleeting and it happens once and then you spend the rest of your life pursuing that again, right? Like, I, yes. that that's where I want to live. Um, and that's really sort of this concept of, the Sacred Chase. The book is The Sacred Chase. Heath Adamson is the author. Heath, I want to talk about um, this. Uh, this It's not even a full sentence, but uh, it's a declaration. The ultimate form of pride is prayerlessness. Talk about uh, yes. the importance of prayer and then talk about the pride of prayerlessness. You know, we were, um, we were created to know God intimately. Let's go back to Genesis 1. When God created the universe, what does God do? According to Scripture, God speaks. But when God created humanity, God does not speak. Instead, God scoops up a mound of dirt and breathes. When God speaks, galaxies form. But God saved his very breath for us. That word breath is ruach. It is also translated spirit or spirit of God. And the point is this. um, Wind can fill a space um, that is often almost impossible for anything else to fill. It goes to every nook and cranny. And we were created by God for the Spirit of God to completely inhabit. And when we come before God in prayer, and sometimes prayer is asking God for things, but sometimes prayer is a posture of the heart where we just lean in and we want to connect with God because we love Him. Um, But we were created to know God intimately When we make decisions, when we live our life, and candidly, even when we make good decisions and we go to church and we have a faith-branded life, when we do that, apart from 
the intimacy that is found only in prayer, prayer to God, connecting with God, then it is the ultimate form of pride. When we seek to live our life formed in the image of our creator, apart from knowing our creator. That's what I mean. When you, um, when you, and you've now used it a couple of times, um, this idea of a faith branded life or a Christian branded life, um, describe to people what you're talking about there, because it sounds like, you know, Christian-ish or Christian-esque or Christian culture or nominally Christian. Is that, is that what, or it's just the rhythms of what it looks like to be a Christian culturally today versus this intimate fellowship with God. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, that is what I'm getting at. And and again, spiritual disciplines are crucial and important. Um, I'm thankful that we can read the Bible consistently and pray and be a part of a faith community and express what God is doing in our life with other friends. We would perhaps call that fellowship. Um, All of the spiritual disciplines are crucial. They are important. And sometimes I think people are so afraid to be inauthentic in their relationship to God that they step away from those disciplines. I would suggest those disciplines are crucial to being authentic. But when you look at the Gospels, those who were primarily responsible for the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus were not those who were Um, not a part of a religious system. They were people who were very much devoted to religious disciplines. They prayed uh, arguably more than most of us do today. They devoted almost all, if not all, of the scriptures that they had access to at that time to memory. They were very committed to their disciplines, but those disciplines did not lead them into intimacy with God. And that's ultimately the purpose. It is not so that we can sit down and feel better about ourselves uh, once we're done uh, reading or praying. Um, The term would be moral therapeutic deism, where um, because of our moral lives and our moral decisions, we come to a place where we feel good about ourselves. That's what I mean by a faith-branded or a Christian-branded life. So much more than that. It is possible to connect with God in such a way to where when you're not sure what decision to make, God can lead you. When you're at your wit's end as a parent and you really don't even have a clue where to start, whether it's with your five-year-old or your 25-year-old, God has something to say about that. When you need solutions in your marriage, God cares more about our marriage than even we do. And God is fighting for us. He's not fighting with us. And God has a solution to every challenge we face. But the key is it is found in being lured into that space where we experience God. And sometimes we think experiencing God isn't something that is appropriate or that God wants us to do. On the contrary, we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And um, so exchanging the Christian branded life where externally it looks good, but perhaps internally maybe it's a little, there's something missing, exchanging that for a never-ending, ongoing, intimate connection with Jesus. Boy, Carmen, there's nothing better than that. Amen. I'm going to continue my conversation with Heath Adamson in just a moment. We are talking about his book, The Sacred Chase. Um, When we come back, we're going to talk about soul awareness as a spiritual discipline. And I'm also going to ask about the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5, because it's really, it's it's, it's a key illustration in the book, and uh, I want to invite Heath to share it with all of us. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
I'm talking with Heath Adamson, uh, most recently the author of The Sacred Chase. Uh, the book is, you'd have to pre-order it right now, so let me just go ahead and forewarn you um, that when you Google The Sacred Chase, and, you, and you're going to be pre-ordering because it's not actually available till the end of March. So there you go. We're, we are ahead of the game today, um, which I love. Um, so it's a great Easter gift. Let's think of it that way. Um, Heath, let's talk about soul awareness as a spiritual discipline. What, what, what is soul awareness? Let's start with that. And then how is soul awareness a spiritual discipline? Okay. You know, um, God does not bless who we pretend to be. Uh, God does not bless who people perceive us to be. Uh, the, the blessing of God is there when we step into the shoes God created us to fill and we become who God intended us to be. Soul awareness is is all about making sure that we do not become enslaved to the opinions of the crowd, uh, that we do not change our standards based on who is in the room with us at that particular time. Soul awareness is all ultimately about God. Who have you created me to be, and I'm going to do everything I can to become who you intended me to become. But sometimes every now and then things get in the way. And if we don't slow down and notice those small things that creep up in our soul that distract us from intimacy with God, they can have a profound impact. And I feel like that is connected to this um, surrender, this moment by moment need to surrender, acknowledge and submit, and that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Talk, talk with us about sort of the interconnectedness of all of those ideas in this work. Yeah, when you, one of the most famous stories in the Bible is David and Bathsheba. And if you're listening and you don't know what that story is, it's okay. You can read about it. But um, David was a king, and one day he was walking on the roof of uh, one of his, his palaces, if you will, and he sees a beautiful woman. He sends for that woman. He commits adultery with her. Eventually, he ends up murdering her husband, and a lot of uh, tragedy takes place. Um, but here's here's what's interesting. The king could have had access to any woman he wanted. Um, he was powerful, influential. Um, but when you read in the in the scriptures, the Bible's clear that there was something else going on beneath the surface in King David's life. And what I suggest is David did not commit adultery with Bathsheba because he lacked self-control. Rather, he committed adultery and murder because he lacked self-awareness. When we come to God and we embrace the salvation that is available only through Jesus, one of the greatest gifts that God gives us is a relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us we are a building or a temple that the Holy Spirit lives in. Why would God do that? Uh, Well, in John 16, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is the Spirit guides us into all truth. And when the Spirit of God who comes and lives inside of us becomes our companion, our compass, our hopefully closest friend in life, um, the Spirit of God comes alongside and guides us not into a counterfeit form of life, um, not into a substandard way of being, but instead the Spirit of God equips us to make the right choices in the right way at the right time so that we can reflect the goodness of God's purpose that God um, ultimately died to give us. Um, Heath, this is... um, 
not every book is is like a gift and a treasure, but this one is because it it's it's like a key that's going to unlock for readers um, something that they have really felt like was out of their reach. Like n- very few times um, do we have something that is laid out so um, so well and so simply, frankly, uh, that. Anybody could pick it up and say, okay, I, I can unlock this. I can unlock what feels to me like it has been just out of my reach and something that I couldn't get, which is an intimate fellowship with God. I have, you know, I know he's there, but I don't know how to crawl up into his lap. And that's what really what you're, you're teaching us how to do. You're equipping us to do. Talk with us about the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5 and why that illustration is important to this conversation. Yeah, so um, Mark chapter 5, we encounter someone who is so hurting, uh, so tormented, that he literally forgot his name. Um, The Bible's clear that this man lived in tombs where the dead were buried. This man is tormented, even possessed by thousands of evil spirits. Uh, This man screams, according to Mark 5, day and night. He, according to the other Gospels, is not wearing clothing. He is cutting himself. He is a self-mutilator. If you've, out of everybody in the Bible, this man is probably one of the most hopeless. He wanders around naked, covered in blood and pus and scabs. I apologize the frankness, but that's the story. This man screams all of the time. He's tormented. He has forgotten his name. And out of everybody in the Bible, he is the one I can relate to the most, primarily because of my background. I did not come from a faith background. I had a lot of issues myself. But there's something that happens. This man, the Bible says, when Jesus comes to the shore, this man does not run in the opposite direction because he's embarrassed and ashamed. Instead, he runs directly toward Jesus. And here's the point. This man had thousands of reasons, thousands of excuses why he didn't have time to pursue Jesus. He had thousands of legitimate excuses as to perhaps why God would not even be interested in him or maybe why God would expect him to clean up himself before he came to God. If anybody could talk himself out of the sacred chase, it is the man whose name we do not even know. He was simply defined by his condition. He called himself legion for the voices distracting him were many. But this man set aside every excuse and he pursued Jesus. He started his sacred chase. Now, Carmen, what would you do if someone who was not wearing any clothes, covered in blood, perhaps missing body parts, screaming at the top of their lungs, came running directly at you? I tell you what I would do. I would run in the opposite direction. I would look for an authority. Um, I would try to protect myself. But according to Mark 5, what Jesus does is Jesus looks at the man and he asks a profound question, a simple question. He asks, what is your name? He, he, he looks into the eyes of a man who forgot who he was. And what does Jesus do initially? He doesn't just want to deal with the guy's issues. Now he does that. But initially, he deals with the gentleman's identity. And that's what the sacred chase is about. It's about remembering that in the hustle and bustle of this life, everybody has a to-do list. We have college bills to pay, kids to raise, a marriage to work on, a job to go to, um, a, a trial to get through, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, we were formed and fashioned for a, 
an unseen world. And it is possible for what we don't see to become even more real than anything we do see. And it starts with a glance. We glance, and when we catch a glimpse of Jesus, we set aside every excuse and we run. But I want to be clear, running or the sacred chase is not about striving. We do not strive for God's approval. It is about coming to a place of rest where no matter how um, our life currently looks, even the man in Mark 5, Jesus is interested in who we are. And I don't know about you, but that is deeply encouraging, and it makes me want to pursue Jesus with everything I have. Amen. Keith Adamson, thank you so much. The book is The Sacred Chase. Um, it is a genuine gift, and uh, and right now we would be pre-ordering it. Um, congratulations on its launch. Thanks for being here. We look forward to continuing this conversation. That's all we've got time for today on Mornings with Carmen. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.